This Access Utah episode first aired last year. Of the roughly 120 people forced from their homes by Executive Order 9066, around 5,000 were able to escape incarceration beforehand by fleeing inland. In her new book, Forced Out, a Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America, Judy Kawamoto offers insight into voluntary evacuation, a little-known Japanese-American experience during World War II. In the book, she addresses her personal and often unconscious reactions to her parents' trauma, as well as her own subsequent travels around much of the world, exploring, learning, enjoying, but also unconsciously acting out a continual search for a home. Judy Kawamoto is a retired uh, psychotherapist and joins us uh, for the hour today. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good, good, good to have you on. Fascinating uh, history and uh, and your personal experience as well. I wonder if we could just uh, start out with a brief passage uh, from the book. I understand you have the book with you. Uh, so this is just the first page uh, from the preface. I wonder if you could just uh, read that uh, that for us. Page Roman numeral okay. nine. Digging up stories about the past, about one's family, and about one's early life, wherever that may have taken place, can be a trying affair. So many of these stories, at least for me, have been difficult memories. Memories of racism and hardship and poverty. Memories that under normal circumstances one tries not to dwell on. In fact, growing up, my personal model was not try to remember but try to forget. But life doesn't always let you have your way. (laughs) There's a particular question I know I will be asked whenever I meet another Japanese-American over the age of, say, 50, a question I always have to respond to with the same disappointing answer. The question, what camp was your family in? My answer, we didn't go to a camp. The questioner is not referring to Girl Scout camp or church camp or junior high school leadership camp. No, the questioner, clearly seeing I am a woman of Japanese ancestry, is referring to the World War II incarceration camps for Japanese Americans. Yeah, that that's very striking. And you go on to say that, uh, you know, over time uh, you got this question, you were, you know, irritated, but but mostly frustrated. But you say most of all left you feeling unseen and like a perpetual outsider. So outsider among even potentially, you know, uh, a community which which could have included you. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so why did you, uh, obviously, uh, you know, very interesting history, but why did you especially want to tell your story? Well, I think that this that little interchange I had with that person who... Um, when I said we didn't go to a camp, I was I was really stunned by the fact that he just wasn't interested. Then he didn't want to know why. He didn't want to find out what did happen to my family. Uh, he just kind of walked away, and it really was um, it was so kind of dis- disconfirming, or if that's a word. It made me feel so invisible, and I also just got really angry, and I thought, well, you know, there are other stories here that should be told, and I'm going to tell this one because I feel like my parents need some recognition about what, what really did happen to them, because it certainly wasn't fun or easy, or um, they didn't get to stay where they had planned to live and planned to make their lives, so... 
I decided to write that story. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Um, so before we get into your story, uh, and there's some uh, you found out doing research that some five thousand uh, other folks who who experienced the, the kind of similar history that you did. Um, uh, but remind us about the, uh, the Japanese Americans who were who were sent to what they were called internment camps for people who made a little fuzzy with that. Uh, this is Executive Order 1966. Uh, FDR issued this order. W- what was the rationale? What was the reasoning that was given? Well, my understanding is that it was because um, the the rationale that was spoken and told to the people was that they were a security risk. They were afraid that the government and some of the the people around them were afraid that Japanese Americans, because I, I think partly because um, they were so uh, close together and in less, some rather large communities like in Los Angeles and in the Bay Area and, and parts of Washington and Oregon, they were rather large communities. And the feeling was that these people would probably um, rebel uh, side with the, with the nation of Japan and could not be trusted and therefore needed to be put away someplace where they could be watched. And um, I, I mean, I can understand that that rationale was given. My personal feeling is that the people who they were wanting to get rid of were doing very well. They had very... Um, lucrative personal businesses, some of them, and they were doing very well with farming in places like the Central Valley of California and even down south a little further with some of the area that was very arid, and most people just turned up their noses to it and said, oh, that's not going to grow anything, why bother? But my understanding is that some Japanese-Americans did go down to that area and figured out how to uh, probably irrigate and um, grow some some pretty um, lucrative crops down there. So the fear was, uh-oh, you know, these people are going to take us over and um, we're not going to have it. So they were they were rounded up and put in camps. Mm. Lest we forget, uh, I'm assuming that some 120,000 uh, people most were citizens, right? And and so this is essentially, yes. as you write, yes. uh, tossing out the Constitution. Exactly. Yes. Um, I my understanding, my figures that I I found, and this is now several, of course, several years old. Uh, Two thirds were American-born citizens, and their elders, their you know, their parents, their grandparents, were um, still considered that term that weird term of um, uh, aliens, and um, they actually were not allowed to become citizens uh, to some early law, so uh, otherwise they probably would have wanted to become citizens and taken, you know, whatever tests or do whatever process they had to go to to become citizens, but they were they were not allowed to do that through, through law, so... Um, there was not a question of loyalty really within the, their communities. They were all very loyal and they liked being where they were and they liked being um, 
able to be citizens when they could. One more thing on uh, those who were, who were sent to internment camps before we get to your story. Um, the, the, I, I believe uh, most were promised you can return to your lives, you know, after the security risk is over. Uh, but, but that didn't turn out to be the case, right? Uh, the businesses, homes, had already, yeah. already been taken over. Yeah, I. The, my understanding is that, yes, exactly what you said, that so many of their homes, quote, you know, and businesses, quote, were, were pretty quickly taken over by people who were not doing as well, white people who were not doing as well, uh, or people who just, thought, wow, this is a this is a good moment. And um my um a few years ago I went to um the international district in Seattle just to kind of check out where my parents had uh, had been living and working and um there there's very clear information there that um some of the businesses that were so hastily evacuated because the the people you know, who owned the Japanese Americans who owned the businesses didn't really have a chance to do anything to get to get rid of them, to sell them or to take them take them apart and store things. They were just, you know, ushered out, and um, it was pretty fast the um, the takeover by the uh, white population, and they were very pleased to be able to just move into businesses and homes that had pretty much been left the way they, um, they'd been functioning all along. Um, so businesses were well-stocked and homes were, um, most people didn't have an opportunity to take furniture with them or any, any major um, personal belongings except, you know, they could pack a suitcase. My understanding is that what I've always heard and read is that you could pack one suitcase, and um, that was it. And you were you were taken off to at the time they didn't know where. So um, I I did visit some of those places in uh, in Seattle and did see some of the businesses and um, a museum that was built for uh, documenting that history and um, it was. It was interesting because that's a fairly large district, and um, and some of the businesses there are still, you know, they're still thriving. Um, they haven't. Uh, most of the people who uh, run them and own them are not Japanese Americans. Many are other um, ethnic Asians, um, Cambodians and Laotians and um, Koreans, but. Um, they eventually, you know, they were eventually able to take on the businesses from some of the white people who who had tried and some pretty unsuccessfully to take over the businesses that the Japanese Americans had left. Mm. So um, uh, tell us about uh, voluntary evacuation. This is in quotes, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so what, what happened with your parents and others like them? Did you, they see the handwriting on the wall, or did somebody tell them you, you got to leave, or what, what happened? Well, apparently, my understanding is that the, the rule was that um, if you had some relative or had some friends, or had a job 
waiting for you in what what was generally just called the interior of the country um, at that time, you could go there and reestablish yourself. Um, But that was just not the case for most people. You know, they had established themselves as um, professionals and as business people in the areas that they ended up having to leave. So um, in the case of my parents, my grandparents, my father's parents, were farming in Wyoming, and they were doing fairly well. Um, They didn't have a lot of competition from other um, Asian Americans at that point, (laughs) and um, Wyoming still probably being pretty um, unpopulated. Um, and so my parents decided that they would just go there um, and stay with my grandparents because uh, my father said, I, I just, I'm just refusing to raise my children in, in a camp. I'm, uh, I'm just not doing it. So they, um, they left and stayed with my grandparents. Mm. Uh, so you took, in the book, you, you write, you take a trip to Seattle, many years later, of course, um, Trying, I guess, uh, in essence, trying to find out what your what your the life your parents lost, right, when they were forced to yes, move yes. to the interior. Uh-huh. What what did you what did you find? What uh, what kind of life do you think they would have had if they hadn't have had to go to Wyoming and then Montana and Colorado? Well, you know, as I as I um, had said a little bit ago, that the actual international district had changed a lot and. Um, the a lot of the businesses that had been Japanese American uh, were first taken over by whites, and they many of them did not do well because people, um, bless their hearts, the white people in the community just refused to, <laughs> refused to um, give them any business because they were they were aware of the um, the unfairness of the whole thing and. So um, other ethnic Asians had had taken over much of the the um, professional and business lives of, of people living in the international district. My parents, at the time of the evacuation, um, my father was a student at the University of Washington, and um, he had to work during the day, but he went to classes at night, and. Um, he um, was, you know, trying to hold on to that because one thing that he, and of course, I think the stereotype is in part true that that Japanese Americans really value is an education. So he was doing what he could to get his, and um, uh, it was, you know, it wasn't easy and it wasn't particularly fun, but he was hanging in there, working uh, working days and um, going to classes at night. So um, when when they left, he had to give all of that up. Yeah, and, uh, and, and, and you write that your, your mother also lost a community of, of other, you know, young Japanese-American mothers and uh, a support system, right? Yes, yes. She, um, uh, which is always an interesting thing to me because I, I never quite understood 
how she got interested in that, or maybe it was just that she um, could see people, you know, around her taking taking on this kind of work. But she became trained as a, a beautician, and one thing that she got very good at was cutting hair. <laughs> so um, she, when we were growing up, she would always cut our hair, um, our meaning myself and my two sisters. She would cut cut our hair because she knew how to do it, and um, so when when they had to uh, leave, she had to give all of that up. And um, there was a process where, you, if you're doing that work, you you have to renew a license to to be to remain a beautician, and um, I think it's probably a state license. And so she has. Uh, we have records. My sister, who keeps some of these um, documents, has records of my mom, my mom's uh, licenses for for maybe five years or so, and then of course they just stopped altogether because she was, um, in, you know, went to camp and or went to Wyoming and uh, uh, didn't pick up the business there. Yeah, it's very poignant uh, that you know. Every year, and then they stop, and, and never to be renewed, right? Right, right. Um, let's take a, a brief break. Uh, when we come back, um, I want to hear about uh, life in... Uh, you were born in Wyoming, and then raised in Montana, and then went to, to Colorado. And um, I want to talk about... You have a whole tra- chapter on, on trauma. It's called Mind the Gap. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the ways that people deal with trauma. Of course, you learned about that as a psychotherapist. Um, and this particular trauma in your family. We'll have more following this break. This is Ag Matters. Many dogs love to accompany their humans on hikes, and faculty in USU School of Veterinary Medicine offer some tips for the trail. Carry enough water for yourself and your dog. Because they don't perspire, it's easy for dogs to become overheated. Streams can be dangerously swift, especially during spring runoff. Grass-ons are sharp, sometimes barbed seeds that can burrow into a dog's skin and cause injuries, pain, and infection. Ons can also get into a dog's nose and cause respiratory problems. Take time to check for ons in your dog's coat, ears, nose, and between their toes. This has been Ag Matters from the College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences at Utah State University. This Access Utah episode first aired last year. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Judy Kawamoto, and the book is Forced Out, a Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. Of the roughly 120,000 people forced from their homes by Executive Order 9066, around uh, 5,000 were able to escape incarceration beforehand by fleeing inland. And uh, in her book, uh, Judy Kawamoto offers insight into voluntary evacuation, a little-known Japanese-American experience during World War II, and recounts her family's uh, history. Uh, so, uh, just briefly, Judy Kawamoto, you, you were born there in Wyoming, but at a certain point your parents... Um, well, I, I, you're right. Your your dad, even though he grew up there in Sheridan, uh, couldn't find work. Um, I guess people wouldn't 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 hire him. And so there was land uh, in Montana, 
and I guess the government said, well, let's let's have folks raise uh, raise food, right? Yes, yes, and especially uh, sugar beets because people were languishing for for their um, because of their lack of ability to get sugar, and I'm not quite sure why that was true, but um, of course we probably all heard some stories about people in England really hurting because they couldn't make frosting for their cakes and they couldn't make cookies and so that was it was kind of a big deal to be able to raise sugar sugar beets and make sugar mm-hmm. uh, and your uh, it sounds like your grandparents moved with you to Montana you know I I am not clear exactly how they got there I mm-hmm. believe that they moved first because they seemed to be set up before we we arrived. Um, so I don't know what made them leave Sheridan. I never really quite got that piece of history, much to my um, regret. I wish I knew more about that. Yeah. Uh, I want to pause here just to, just to mention your grandmother. Uh, sounds like a remarkable woman. Uh, so she was married to a fellow. He decided to go back to Japan for whatever reason, and she said, no, I'm yes. not going back. <laughs> That was grandma. <laughs> so I guess she liked she yeah, she yeah. knew you right she knew that she'd be giving up uh, quite a few freedoms uh, as a woman if if she went back to Japan at that time, right? Yes, I think that that was probably what made her decide not to do it because she was she was very um uh, I think not only um a hard worker but she was pretty creative and um she she was I think brave. She wasn't easily scared off. She was willing to try things and take a chance on, you know, making, doing something. Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about your parents. Uh, they, you learned years later, I think, uh, theirs was an arranged marriage. Yes. Boy, what a shock that was. I had no idea because, of course, they, to me, were a, a modern generation and, um, you know, growing up um, in the 50s and early 60s, uh, I graduated high school in 61, so mostly the 50s, I guess. And if you think back about on that time, um, the the role of women was pretty prescribed, and women looked a certain way. Um, you know, they had usually had their hair done well done and wore lipstick and makeup and um at that time big puffy crinoline skirts were coming in petticoats were coming in so their skirts were kind of sticking and sticking out and looking very fancy and sweaters and in school the girls would wear um sweaters and skirts and um uh, bobby socks that would match the color of their sweaters and some kind of maybe white buck shoes or loafers or something. And so it was very, um, people were very, you know, they were conscious of looking right and doing doing the right thing in terms of fashion. So, um, so I think my grandmother was somebody who paid attention to that, even though she couldn't always, um, always, do exactly the the most fashionable thing because she was 
she was working most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, before we get to, uh, to to some of the rest of this, I wonder if you have a passage from the book you'd like to, to read. Um, well, I do. It's not necessarily um, exactly to the point of what we've been talking about, but I do have a... <clears throat> I have a passage. Um, it's about when we moved to to Denver, mm, and yeah. I um, I had to go to a junior high school that was uh, for me. It was a big junior high school, probably three hundred kids or something like that. Um, and um, you know, it was it was my father was dead set on not having us uh, get cheated out of our education because, of course, he always felt that he had been that uh, cheated. And um, so he made sure we lived in the, in the part of the city that had decent schools. And so we were, <laughs> we were living in East Denver, and um, I went to my, my class in, in junior high school and was pretty shocked that... Uh, the class, just my my class alone, probably was as big as the entire little country school that I had just left. So it was a, an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do have a section I can read from that. Y- yes. Um, the more I took in with this new junior high school, the more I wondered where I belonged and I didn't seem to fit in comfortably in any specific group. I had never met anyone Jewish before junior high school, but I soon learned the meaning of words like synagogue, menorah, and Hanukkah, and their importance to my many classmates who came from Jewish backgrounds. Some came from families who were very liberal in their religious and social practices. Others were from families who practiced their religion more strictly. I was learning to make distinctions among my friends. Other friends came from families who were considered old Denver families, meaning they had taste and manners and old money. My family was struggling working class, but because of the elevated value we placed on education, I seemed to be making friends with the kids who clearly came from much better off middle class families. Our values, goals, and aspirations weren't all that different. It was a financial gap that separated us. Well, that and some of the social behaviors that only my siblings and I noticed. As a minority in every sense, it was up to us to learn the ways of the mainstream. I clearly remember the shock and confusion I experienced the first time a friend offered me a cookie. We were having lunch together at school, and she offered me one of the cookies on her lunch tray. I dutifully and automatically responded with the manners I had learned at home from the time I was able to learn. I politely refused, waiting to be coaxed until I finally gave in and took one. But my friend, taking me at my word, took a cookie for herself and put the rest aside. I thought this was round one and that clearly our little drama was unfinished. She would come back with the cookies and insist that I have one. Only then could I comply. But for her, that was the end of it. She had offered and then taken her own cookie. I could tell she wasn't being rude, so this must be the way things were done. It took a few more times of testing the rules and ending up deprived until I eventually learned to accept something the first time it was offered, as that was likely to be the last time. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lear- learning kind of the hard way. The, the rules <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. It got it kind of low stakes, but still. Um, yeah. Thanks for reading that. Appreciate that. Uh, so it's junior high, uh, you know, I think any person of that age uh, feels the need to fit in. You you had some, mm. I, I don't know how you felt then about, about fitting in. Of course, there are larger questions of, you know, culture and assimilation, but uh, um, sounds like you were making friends, but of course you were, you were a minority as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, it, you know what, when I think back on it today, I think of how, um, well, I, I understand two, two parts to this, I guess. One is that I'm very, I'm very grateful to the um, generosity and the welcoming um, atmosphere that the school, the junior high, um, established when when I first came because I started slightly after um, school has school had already begun and um, and so I was you know I was coming in late I had to register late I had to be assigned classes the whole thing. So I kind of stood out to begin with, but um, I, I was very, I was very, um, I think, surprised and very pleased that people were, were very accepting and generous and um, didn't act strange around me or didn't um, ask me a lot of weird questions. Um, they just kind of took it in stride that I was gonna, I was gonna be part of the <laughs> part of their class. Mm. Um, but I think the other, other part was that I, I really did have to learn new ways of being in the world. And, and it was definitely, um, it was different from what I had grown up with and the way I was used to thinking about people and interactions with people, which was, I think in Japanese culture, the traditional culture is that you, um, you think of the other person first and you do what you can to make them comfortable and accommodate their needs, and um, and they're appreciative. And I think the underlying unspoken aspect of that is that you know that that will be reciprocated um, in time or with the opportunity. It's not; it doesn't go unnoticed. And so, if I'm visiting a friend, and um, they go all out and offer me cookies and food and um, that works. Then um, when they come visit me, I'm it's pretty much expected that I would do the same. So um, that was not necessarily true growing up in a in a white world where everybody thinks of themselves as individuals and independent and trying to kind of make it on their own and prove prove themselves. And um, if you can keep up, fine. And if you can't, well, that becomes your problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to just read a couple of sentences uh, here and then have you respond. Um, this is from the, the chapter that I mentioned, Mind the Gap. My parents created a very large gap in my life, you write, by waiting until I was an older teenager living in Denver to mention why they had left Seattle for Wyoming all those years before. 
Then skipping down a bit. Decades later, in my work as a psychotherapist, it became clear to me one motivation for that kind of pervasive silence is trauma. And so, you, and you talk about trauma. Of course, you know about trauma as a psychotherapist. Um, so you write that this is not unusual. Um, big traumatic event. Uh, you know, folks. Um, have a need or, or an impulse to let's just get on with life and pretend everything's normal, right? And one way you deal with that is is not talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, just, so, um, yeah. So your parents dealt yes, with yes. it apparently. Keep this going. Way. <laughs> yeah, your parents dealt with this this way apparently. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yes. They. Um, I I think it was both that that was. That's just kind of a, um, I guess, a, a, an almost universal way of dealing with trauma. Um, but it was also for for my parents and for many Japanese Americans, it was shameful. It was so shameful to have been singled out like that and put in in camps and barricades, prisons, you know. And um, and so you certainly don't want to dwell on the shame. You want to prove that you're an upstanding citizen and you do all the right things and um, there's nothing shameful about you. So um, that was also, I think, a big reason why it just wasn't uh, a subject to be discussed. You know, you carried on with life and you you did all the things that were expected and more because you wanted to prove that you were worthy. So, um, and I think in the... In Japanese culture, shame is much more um, of a prevalent feeling than in American culture, where it's more guilt, I think. People tend to be made to feel guilty as opposed to feel ashamed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go on to write that um, trauma never really goes away. It <clears throat> just never really gets talked about. It gets buried, consciously repressed, but not diffused. You see, the nasty thing about trauma is it can continue to do its dirty work long after the direct experience of the event, and I think handed down, right? What? Uh, how did this, uh, you know, I, I guess you felt like you had fairly normal childhood, I guess, but then these things uh, c- come out. Uh, what were your feelings at the time when you learned about this? Well, when I, guess, I guess when I really learned about it as a psychological um aspect of, of a person, I um, I started to think about how did I end up dealing with that trauma in my life, the fact that my parents had been um, removed and forced to live places where they didn't want to live, do things they didn't want to do, and never actualize themselves. Um, you know, I, I, I started to understand more my sense of lifestyle, which was to not ever really feel like I had to settle down anywhere, like I could just pick up and take off and move to a new place, whether it was a new city, a new state, a new apartment, a new country, which I never quite made. <laughs> but um, but I thought about it frequently. Oh, I'll, I'll just move to another country because that would be fun and exciting and interesting. And um, So I, I never thought very much about about moving, um, and you know, when you move, it's it's basically very disrupting. Um, everything has to get packed up, and and then you know you have to find a place, then you have to unpack, 
<laughs> so it's it's a it's a big process. Um, but for some reason, I just I just never thought too much about it until I realized that that in a way it was a, a recapitulation of my my parents' experience of having to do that without any input from themselves, and um, in that. I unconsciously was kind of acting that out, that I didn't have to ever settle down and put pictures on my walls or um, buy a lot of uh, china or anything that would need a lot of work to be packed up and moved on. So um, I I see that. I saw that when I started to think it, think it over. I saw that, and I, and I still see that now as an, a part of a of a response to trauma. Mm. What um, what has it done for you to, to to jump into this history? Your you know the overall history, your your family's history, your personal history to to examine it. I guess there are painful aspects of digging it up, but uh, maybe some healing aspects as well. Yes, I I think so. Um, yes, I I. Um, you know, I, I don't think when I started to write that I had a particular goal. Um, and I wish I could remember who told me this, because I, I can't. I just remember that I was told at some point, well, if you're, you want to be a serious writer, you have to do it every day. <laughs> and I had to really think about that, because I, I wasn't sure how serious a writer I wanted to be, and doing it every day. But... Um, but I decided, okay, I'll give it a shot because I, I think one of the, and this sounds very, um, it's kind of shallow, but I thought, yeah, you know, here I am. I've written a few, a few essays here and there, and what a drag to have to try to figure out how to get them published because I, I haven't written them just for the hell of it. I would like to see some of these thoughts that I have had over time um, shared with other people. And in, in more in a more public manner than just telling a friend, and so um, the thought of trying to figure out how to get an individual essay published was so overwhelming that when somebody said to me, "Well, you know, if you really want to be serious about writing, you have to do it every day, and you can write write a book," I thought, "Well, I'll give that a shot because I could put everything together in one book, and then if that doesn't um, take off, or if people aren't interested, then okay, they're not interested in the book. But it's not like getting rejected for ten essays or <laughs> or something, you know, along those lines. So that's kind of how it happened, and um, and the process itself, it was um, it was difficult to to try to remember some of that stuff, of course, but because it wasn't pleasant. But it was also, I wanted to honor my parents because, you know, they'd been through so much and they never got much, um, you know, nobody really acknowledged what they'd been through and they were just happy to be able to continue to work and take care of their families. But when you go through something like that, it does change your life. And I, uh, I just wanted to give them a nod and say thank you. You deserve some um you deserve some credit for doing all that, you know, and going through all that and, and surviving it, actually. 
surviving it, it, it well, you know. You, uh, you write this well in the dedication for my parents, Rose and George Kawamoto. At a time when everything was taken away from them, they never let go of their humanity, which, of course, speaks very well of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's who they were. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, let's uh, take another break. Uh, when we come back, we'll have uh, the, our last segment with uh, Judy Kawamoto, uh, who is author of Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. We'll have that following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and utahumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. For the fourth year in a row, Wallet Hub has named Utah the worst state in the nation for women's equality. Zions Bank commissioned the Utah Women in Leadership Project to dig into these indicators and analyze whether they are accurate and to determine what needs to be done to change things. I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In this upcoming episode, we will discuss some of the highlights from the white paper on this topic. Listen now at upr.org. This Access Utah episode first aired last year. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Judy Kawamoto. Uh, her book out from University Press of Colorado is called Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. Uh, the early uh, part of World War II. Uh, as we know, uh, many Japanese Americans were incarcerated, uh, forced to internment camps. Uh, there were others uh, who, if they had relatives in the interior, uh, could could do that. And so... Judy Kawamoto's uh, family did that, but they were they were forced out in the Seattle area with repercussions throughout their lives. Um, the there are some very harsh ironies, of course, in this history. Uh, one that you uncovered is just breathtaking. Um, you, you learned at a certain point that uh, I think this through reading an article or something. I'm not sure how you. I guess you can tell me how you learned this. Um, but it, it was Japanese American soldiers who liberated Dachau. I hadn't known that before I read the book, and they were threatened with court martial if they if they said anything about it. Why why was that? Well, I think that I, I mean I don't have any um, glowing and. Uh, highly intellectual understanding of that exactly. It's just that I, I think that racism was so strong in the country at that time um, because they were still fighting the war that um, they they just couldn't allow um, this Japanese-American uh, regiment to uh, take, that, take that honor from what they thought should go to white soldiers. Um, it just wouldn't seem right. And it's possible that some people in the um, government at that time also realized that it might it might seem strange to some people who actually knew what was going on with Japanese Americans that um, here here were these soldiers, American soldiers of Japanese descent who were freeing Jews from um, this terrible, situation in, 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 in Europe. So um, they just covered it all up and uh, never really gave credit where credit was due. Well, and the very fact of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team is, is you know, there's there, there's so much there. Uh, 
unit of Japanese Americans fought in the European uh, theater. Some of them uh, joined right from the camps. Yes, yeah. Well, that to me is just uh, it, it's a, that's a bitter one for me. I I find that really hard to take, and I don't quite understand how. I mean, I I understand that, as I say in the book, that the way that it was justified by the people themselves was that this was the only thing that was going to prove their loyalty, actually going out and joining the military and dying for the country. And I think that's right. I think they were right about that, that 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 was the ultimate sacrifice, and that's what they had to do to show that they were loyal American citizens and not secretly spying on Japan or spying for Japan and um, sending secret coded messages and all that kind of, um, you know, BS, basically. Um, so they they uh, formed the the um, 442nd and fought bravely and, of course, um, were at at this point. I'm I'm not sure that this is still a, an accurate fact, but at the time I was writing, they had suffered the most casualties of any um, regiment uh, at that in that war. So. Um, I've heard some uh, pushback on that. I have no idea what you know what that was all about because I didn't follow it up. But um, my understanding is that 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 four forty second did experience the most casualties. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of how I leave it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, another uh, fascinating fact. I think you learned this later. Uh, German POWs worked on your parents' farm. Yes, that was a shock, too. My sister, who uh, was old enough to um, have have just noticed that, uh, <clears throat> she was four years older than, than I. She's sadly um, no longer with us, but um, yeah, she was the one who told me. And I, I was just stunned. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It just seemed like such a bizarre irony that I, I just... I I just had to put it down in black and white and kind of look at it for a while and think about it because it was so bizarre. Yeah, that is that is. Uh, I wonder uh, here at the end, uh, if you have, uh, do you have another passage, uh, short passages that you could read for us? Um. Well, uh, okay. Here's one um, <clears throat> about my grandmother and her cooking. She was an excellent cook, and we always took it for granted and didn't realize until later the how what a good cook she was. Um, so this one, I hope, is short enough. Um, it's talking about her waffles, which were something that we kids just love to um, wait for. <laughs> Although her waffles and bread were worth mentioning, Grandma's tour de force was her homemade noodles. She could have made noodles for any dish she wanted but she always stuck to making them for traditional bowls with steaming hot ramen. Making her own ramen noodles was a labor-intensive job, so when she decided to make them for us, she would marshal her forces, that is, us kids, to help her. Perhaps the only time she could manage to make noodles was when we were around to give her a hand. At any rate, the important item that made it all possible was a noodle machine, a hand-cranked metal contraption that was screwed to the edge of a table or counter, and when fed a slice of dough, would send strands of fine noodles out the other end. 
that was the last step, the actual appearance of long strands of needles that had to be laid out lengthwise on sheets of butcher paper, dusted with flour or perhaps cornstarch to keep them from sticking back together. Before that, there was the making of the dough, which Grandma would need to her own specifications of firmness, and she would then roll it out on the table and cut it into sections around six inches wide, um, which would fit the width of the noodle machine. One of us kids would feed the dough into the machine, another, another of us would crank the handle, and whoever was left would help Grandma take the strands of noodles exiting from the other end and get them onto the sheets of dusted paper. We thought it was great fun. I am now betting that Grandma thought it was a pain in the neck, but something she was willing to do just to make us happy. <laughs> Wonderful. Gives you a real, a real uh, sense for your for your grandmother. Thank you. Yes, I, I was hoping so. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, we reached the, the, the end of our time here. Um, the, the book's a fascinating book. Uh, it's out from University Press of uh, Colorado, Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. And Judy Kawamoto has uh, joined us. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this this opportunity, and thank you for, for doing this and for doing uh, all your good work, which is, which is terrific. Thank you so much. And now it's time for a new UPR segment, She Goes On, with Tanya Gibson. To be resolute means to be unwavering or determined to follow through. You purposely mean to do something. Except maybe in January, when it means to have a lofty goal to completely overhaul your entire existence and then ignore it almost immediately. Funny how a definition can change like that. It was my dad, long ago, that said he didn't understand the need for beginning the year with a list full of resolutions. One of those things that I can hear him say so clearly in my cells is, when something in your life needs improving, don't wait until the new year to change, just do it. It was with that sage advice we were raised. Every year, I watched the Fuhrer from the last week of December until the first day of January from an amused distance. When I was younger, there seemed to be two camps clearly defined. One was the change all the things camp. Their lists were mighty and detailed with one or more goals in a variety of categories laid out in perfect steps. The second camp came with a sneer of derision that one could be so pedestrian as to even think about setting New Year's goals. They took pride in their disdain and their outspoken opinions on the matter were a brand unto themselves. My dad seemed to fit exactly nowhere. Except maybe he was just ahead of his time, really. Today, I see far more than two camps. I see variations on a theme everywhere I turn. Sure, the first two camps have dialed up and taken their respective opinions to extremes, it seems. But there are others chanting loudly as well. There is the Word of the Year camp, of which I'm a decade-plus long member, where you take one word and let it be a sort of guide throughout the year. Within this camp are those who set goals surrounding that word and those who do not. Those who actively search for experiences and activities that stop just short of goal setting and those who meditate daily with that word front and center as a guide. Variety, it seems, for as many people who choose this particular outlet. And then there are those who set goals but are much looser with their interpretations and executions. Those who set a goal per month as to not overwhelm. Those who change a habit only maybe until it's done or maybe for a quarter of the year or maybe it changes with life. 
There are those who build around a family mission statement or a personal mantra, or those who have a nebulous concept of improvement but are loath to form anything concrete for fear of real and actual change. And then there are those who, like my dad, don't see the need for a manufactured fresh start to spur them to change. They accept life and change as it happens and, I suspect, are much better at living in the present than some. I understand I'm very similar, but a bit different from my dad. I don't write down New Year's resolutions, favoring instead a guiding word each year to tuck away without any specific goals attached, but I also try to change as needed, whether that reflection time corresponds with the turn of the calendar or not. Sometimes I'm more successful than others and makes me wonder when does being resolute of having that determination to do something change into resolution, the act of completing what you determined to change. Those are the stories I'm interested in, it seems. I scroll through the phone and read the intentions of friends and strangers, but would love to scroll again come March and see some resolution to those intentions. Spend the hour and see that being resolute matters far longer than that strange week between holidays where no one understands what day it is and are too drunk on soft-centered chocolates to comprehend real life come April. When does being resolute fade, melted with the snow in the spring or buried with the extra blankets in January? I'm curious why the spotlight every year, when even now, 10 days into this new year, the shine is already beginning to dull and real life, it turns out, really is a daily thing and for most of us is a continuation of and not a start of that life we're already living. This is Tanya Gibson for She Goes On. listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.